Did you know I recently read that people after they graduate from college rarely, if ever, read another book? Really? That is so sad because learning is a lifelong habit we all should embrace. Well, it certainly should be. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of found that hard to believe myself, especially when everything that with everything that's going on, I still find it personally very comforting to sit down with a good book and get lost in the literature. You know, I so agree with you. Nothing better than sitting down with a good book in front of a fireplace and reading with a good cup of tea. Hi, everyone. Hope you've been having a wonderfully creative week. I'm Rod Jones, and we celebrate what people love to do creatively by giving them a voice so you can learn and be more motivated from their life's experiences. And I'm Angie Jones. Welcome to Thought Road Podcast. We invite you to subscribe wherever you listen, and we focus on sharing with everyone how they can think, be, and live more creatively. Okay, Angie, who is going to be our great guest today? Well, our guest today is Kelly Tenney. She spends most of her career as a school teacher and a university professor, and she now specializes in e-learning, curriculum design, and she is currently a consultant on how to develop online courses. You know, it looks to me like online courses are they're mm-hmm. very popular because you can further your education, actually, but most specifically on topics that are really important to you. So true. Courses are pretty cool. Mm -hmm. So it's my guess that today you're going to have a quote that has something to do with learning, right? Yes, I do. And it's kind of uh, a surprising person, actually, because he's also a musician. So here is our quote for this episode. The beautiful thing about learning is no one can take it away from you. And this quote is by B.B. King, Blues yeah. King. Yeah. Yeah. Well, m- musicians can come up with good quotes sometimes. Well, of course. No, I know. But it, <laughs> this it wasn't, one really fits, right? It, it does fit, but it wasn't, it's not a teacher. And I wanted to find one as a teacher, and I, this one just really stood out. So that's why I yeah, thought well, it would be a good I one like to share. It. I mean, B.B. King is famous for mm-hmm. Three O'Clock Blues, one of my favorites. And, you know, I read a little bit more about him, and I also found it, very interesting that mm-hmm. in the beginning, as a child, Big B. King was forbidden by his mother to sing the blues. And she had a quaint way of saying it. It's the devil's music. Oh, boy. But fortunately for all of us, he continued to sing the blues, and he did it magnificently. I want to thank his mom, because I think she made it forbidden, so he pursued it more. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so there you yeah. go. Well, you know, B.B. King was such a legend and a blues king. What else can you say about him? He's a fabulous, fabulous musician. But anyway, so let's go on to our interview and listen to what Kelly Tenney has to say. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to the Thought Road podcast. I know we're going to be chatting a lot about education. Exciting, huh? Yes, it is. Hi, Kelly. It's great to have you with us today. 
Thank you. It's so good to be here. And I'm I'm really excited about the conversation that's in store today. Oh, good, because we are, too. I know that when we initially talked to you, we had some great topics and I know everyone's going to really want to listen to it, too. So but before we get started with the interview, we always like to ask our guests what they had for breakfast. And I'm excited because you're in our time zone. So it's like just a little bit ago, <laughs> not too long. Yes, and I hope you won't be disappointed, but I have to tell you that I'm not a breakfast person. So I typically don't eat breakfast until about 11 Mm o'clock. I have had a couple cups of tea, though, so there there is something, but I have not had breakfast yet officially. Okay, well, you know, there's been quite a few people that just don't eat breakfast. They're more of like a mid-morning lunch person and completely understand that. Or they start out their day with a tuna sandwich or something like that. Well, some people do. And a burrito. Yeah, they don't like breakfast food. No, I understand that. Yeah. I will I will say that I woke up hungry this morning and perhaps it was because my stomach knew that you were going to ask this question. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe preconditioning for breakfast. Could be, yes. could be. Well, Kelly, why don't you share with us where you're originally from? We'd like to know that and, and actually where you grew up. Yeah. So I'm originally from uh, the Bay Area. I grew up um, right around uh, San Francisco, about 20 miles south of San Francisco. And um, I actually was born and raised in the city where my parents still live today, which is Redwood City, California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I probably would still be there if I hadn't decided to come down to Southern California for college. It's certainly a place that I am fond of and, you know, always am am striving to get back, back up there at some point. I can see that. It's gorgeous up there. Beautiful part of the state, for sure. Mm -hmm. And so, the time time you spent up there, do you have a favorite childhood memory? You know, I think one of my favorite childhood memories, strangely enough, was making the trek down to where I live now, which was Southern California. We used to all pile in the car and we would probably make the, it was probably our traditional annual Disneyland trip. Oh, okay. But, um, you know, it was such this, it was, I always knew that it was coming and we did it so often that um, I have really fond memories, strangely enough, driving on the five freeway so i'm sure you guys are familiar with that but it's it's, yeah it's definitely a freeway that is desolate to say the least at at times but i I really just uh enjoy that drive and i find that even now making the trip in the opposite direction when i take my kids up to go see my parents and things like that you know it still just makes me smile thinking about that that one strip that road trip that always meant we were heading to disneyland and and having a new adventure so absolutely exciting exciting. did you guys do now that you take your children north do you take the coast highway at times through Big Sur and all that. Yeah, it is so beautiful. And we haven't done the complete highway one from Southern California all the way up to the Bay Area. I actually run marathons and I have run the Big Sur marathon a oh. handful of times, which is quite lucky because it's actually a lottery only marathon so you can only get in if you're chosen out of the lottery and I've I've run it three times Mm -hmm. so I would like to you know say that I've been able to run one of the most beautiful parts of of California there along the one but typically when we bring our kids up we will take the five and then we'll cut over to 
you know, like San Luis Obispo, and sure. then we might drive that oh, second, yeah. that oh, second that's, way that's up. A great so that's drive. yeah, that's really nice. Yeah, that's something we've done. But really, really, any of that part is beautiful. Well, it's also a time issue. You it know, is. That's, it does. It is. a, a yeah. long, long state. <laughs> yes. Yes, it yeah, is. that's that's, you know, and that's just it when you when you've got kids in the car and you think like, oh, we could take this beautiful drive, but it might add on two hours, you know, to our trip. Typically, as parents, we're like, well, let's see how we can keep the time down and not have them be in the car for so long. That's Cut down true. On the bathroom stops. Well, that's true. Exactly. <laughs> that's true. Exactly. Uh, you know, I am curious, how long is that run in Big Sur that you do? It's twenty six point two miles. Oh, my God. Um, and. Yes. And it starts, it starts up in the redwoods uh-huh. and then it comes and you pop out on highway one and you basically run highway one for, I would say 23 of those miles before cutting into the town of Carmel, which is where it ends. Oh my gosh. What a beautiful run, yeah. but pretty grueling though, it, because it is hilly. It is. It's very grueling. They say it's one of the hardest marathons to run because of the hills and the elevation. Mm -hmm. The other thing is the weather, you know, the the winds can be pretty brutal up there. And so if it's a day where there's high winds, um, the way the course is, yeah, and the fog, you're actually running into the wind Mm -hmm. a lot of the times. But um, I was just sharing with some of my running friends that it's just so beautiful. It's really it's really easy to be able to just stop and take a look at the scenery and, and kind of take your mind off what some of the grueling pieces of that run can be. I bet. I bet. But bravo on that. That's a a long run and it's grueling and hard, but gorgeous. The best. Gorgeous. Yes. The best. Well, you know, we're going to fast forward to today. And I know that you spent a lot of time in the world of education and we're interested to find out what led you to pursue that career. Uh, Yeah, I love that question because I feel like my my story is not a common one. You know, my my daughter, who's she'll be 12 next week, always asks, did you always want to be a teacher? And the answer is no. (laughs) And, And I, you know, I teach out here at Cal State Long Beach. I teach future teachers and a lot of them have those stories that they've always wanted to be a teacher. They come from long lines of teachers. But actually, my my bachelor's is in community and school health education. So my background is actually in health education, not necessarily from the perspective of K through 12 education, but really looking at how to support the health and wellness of school age uh, Mm -hmm. population, as well as people in the community. And when I was about to graduate college uh, with my bachelor's, my mentor uh, at the time pulled me aside and she said, you know, the state of California is actually going through a teacher shortage. So we were going through a severe teacher shortage right around when it was time for me to graduate. And I had had my mentor in the school health education class where mm-hmm. we had to develop lessons and deliver lesson plans. And she said, you know, I always felt like you were really comfortable delivering lesson plans, comfortable up in front of the classroom. Um, you should consider applying to teach at Mm. least until you get your master's, which I was going to go on and get my master's in public health. And I just thought with the, you know, the schedule of teachers and of course my parents were like, yes, please get any job, you know, you're about to graduate (laughs) college. And California was so desperate for teachers. You were actually able to teach under what they called an emergency credential. Uh 
which basically meant you just had to have your bachelor's and you had to pass the state's fingerprinting clearance and they would allow you to teach in the classroom. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, it was really interesting. It's kind of scary now that I look at it, but it really, I think, is a testament for how short they were. There was just that baby boom that was coming in. Mm -hmm. We have, you know, a cap on class size, uh, student to teacher ratio. And so they really needed a lot of teachers. So I decided to do that. And Mm -hmm. I ended up teaching middle school. I actually taught middle school math, science, and one section of health. And it was at an inner city school, you know, a lot of the schools that tend to be quote unquote, you know, in tougher areas are the ones that needed the teachers the most. Mm -hmm. And I ended up uh, in a middle school classroom in in North Long Beach and I never left. Mm. (laughs) Oh, wow. For you. What a great, like, that's such a great story. I love it. You know, I want to ask you this about that. You know, you kind of brought that up. It seems like many of the schools across the country, not only in California, but everywhere, mm. have students they refer to as high risk. What exactly mm-hmm. does that mean? Apparently, you, you've had yeah, your experience in that, in that area. area. Yeah. So so students who are considered high risk or at risk re- refers to students who have a higher probability of either flunking a class, dropping out of school or testing below proficiency levels on their standardized tests. And I'm not a fan of of the term because there's a lot of factors, I think, that can create these high risk students. And they're all over the board. They're from learning disabilities to health and financial issues, Mm -hmm. homelessness, domestic violence, parent education level. And we kind of just use that term to like lump them in, but essentially they're, they're students who are less likely to be academically successful. Okay. Well, that makes sense because it's like a Mm -hmm. whole mixed bag though of, of different backgrounds and uh, abilities, I guess. Well, you can have a learning disability at a very young age like I did. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's very Mm -hmm. true. Yeah. And I just feel like um, they have very common characteristics regardless of what their factors are, which is why I think they kind of put this term recognizing that they do have some commonalities. And so I think the educational system really tries to address and deal with the commonalities. Mm -hmm. I think that's a way they've been able to kind of streamline the support that they're giving to these students. So I definitely see why they have this, you know, this umbrella term for them. Although I I do think because there's so many different factors, you know, I would say obviously dealing with those individual factors is probably more effective than what those common characteristics are. The term high risk. is Yeah, that's not what came to my mind when I've heard that. I thought maybe mm-hmm. they were more violent or, you know, had sort of a, a social problem where they couldn't get along with others. That's what I thought when I heard high risk. That was interesting that it means so much more. Well, it's kind of a yeah. it's a broad yeah. term that probably yeah. is not all that applicable when you think about it. Yeah. You know, yeah, it really isn't. And, you know, to your point, disruptive behavior is one of the commonalities Mm-hmm. Um, that we see with high risk students. So it is a combination of declining grades, low grades, uh, disruptive behavior. They're more likely to 
be tardy or absent. So, so you're not too far off because, you know, that, that social piece Mm -hmm. is a part that we often see in that population. That's wow. Okay. There's a lot of psychological responses there too, right? Mm -hmm. If you're you're not very smart, you try to bring attention to yourself in other areas or or to fray that Mm -hmm. or whatever that term is. You just kind of push it away. And and act out, right? You're determined you act out. Right. You become a comedian. You you end up. Yeah, that's nice when they become a comedian. (laughs) You you become a stand up (laughs) comedian at some improv place. At Long Beach Middle School. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Well, then, uh, Kelly, how do you take these high-risk students and then turn them into motivated students? Because I would think that would be a little hard. It is challenging. And what I have found is that one of the issues with quote unquote labeling them. And and again, I was in secondary education, right? So I worked with mm-hmm. middle school students. And, and by the time they got to middle school, you know, a lot of these students had had gone through elementary school with these labels, you know, with these, the label of being high risk or at risk. And by the time they get to me, I really think the self-fulfilling prophecy kind of takes over and they just start to believe Mm -hmm. the, you know, that they are who the characteristics say they are, you know, they're disruptive. They are, they don't care about school. They have low motivation. They aren't academically successful. And so you know, it can be really challenging because they kind of already come with these beliefs about themselves. And, you know, I think the biggest way to motivate them is to allow them to see success, you know, to really start to slowly break these beliefs that they have about themselves. And so, you know, one of the things that I've recognized is really motivating for these kinds of students at least, you know, academically, and this does work with behavior as well, is mm-hmm. to really focus on the, the the baby steps, you know, so, so focus, you know, not focusing on you have a D, let's get you to an A, but focusing on, hey, you got 35% last time, and this time you got 50%, you know, or I've even had students that maybe were challenging, you know, behavior wise, and I've said, Hey, I didn't have to talk to you yesterday. And that is a big celebration. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think for them, sometimes the successful student or that their vision of who the successful student is seems so far away. It seems so hard to grasp that I found that it's, you know, you need really need to motivate them with just the next step. I mean, to me, it's comparable to weight loss. You know, if someone has 50 pounds that they need to lose, mm-hmm. that, that probably seems like it's so far away and it's going to be so difficult. But if you focus on, I lost two pounds this week, I lost two more pounds the next week. And, you know, you can live in that success and you can see that progress and it doesn't just seem so difficult and so unreachable. High risk students are not not as not so different from that example when it Mm -hmm. comes to finding some kind of motivation. And I think everyone can really appreciate that because I think sometimes we put these goals ahead of us, whether we're Mm -hmm. high risk or not. Uh, I like the baby baby steps is what it's about. Because if you just do one, have one success a day, you've had a success. you're, You're really a good teacher, Kelly. Love it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I mean, I think it, it really took it it takes some creativity, I think, to work with these students. But one of the things that I found is 
what works with those students work with all students. And so I was really fortunate enough, I think, to be able to work with this population for so long and then eventually realizing, you know, even the students who are academically successful still can benefit from saying, let's just look at the next goal. You know, let's just look at the next step that's in front of us and Mm -hmm. celebrate it and not look so far at, you know, what's going to happen by the end of the year or, or things like that. And, and it's like you said, I think everybody can relate to that and everybody can, can see the benefit of, you know, let's just focus on what we're going to do tomorrow and not worry so much about what's going to happen by the end of the year. Well, I don't need to tell you this, a pat on the back, a little bit of love, a little bit of kindness Mm -hmm. could go a long, long way, especially with children that don't necessarily ever get that at home. Absolutely. Yeah. Wait, I have a question though. Uh, Kelly, do you feel like a lot of these students kind of are lost in the shuffle? And when you come to them and say, hey, look, it's good that you got, you know, 50% instead of 30, that you're recognizing them as a person. Do you feel like that that is where it's at for them? I do. I really, I, I think that these students end up being told and hearing the same thing again and again and again and again. I think teachers at the secondary level, you know, I've been at schools where I've had anywhere from 150 to 185 students, um, which obviously is a lot. And so I think it is easy for kids to fall through the cracks, especially if a lot of these kids are quiet, Mm -hmm. they're less likely to participate. You know, these aren't the kids that are raising their hand and contributing to discussion. Of course not. And so, yeah, I, I do think that they they can easily get lost in the shuffle. And I think it must just be, at least I hope, just such a tremendous shift mm-hmm. for them to have someone say, it's okay if you're still getting C's, but let's recognize that you've taken an F to a C and that's a huge step. And that's really difficult. And, and it is, it's acknowledging them as a person and And I think you're right. I think they probably don't get a lot of positive reinforcement Mm -hmm. at schools and potentially not at home either. And and I think it can make all the difference. Well, especially if they're very quiet, their tendency Mm -hmm. to hang be by themselves most of the time. So, you know, they may not have any friends, whatever, you know, along those lines, budgetary cuts have forced a lot of schools to discontinue offering the classes that classes I always liked, like art or music or any creative class for that matter, maybe even woodshop. How do you think that's mm-hmm. impacted students, especially those that are creatively gifted or actually don't know they're creatively gifted until somebody sticks a crayon in their hand? It's such a detriment to our education system. I think that we have to recognize that while academics are important, it's not how everybody, you know, it's not everybody's strength. It's not how everybody shows their gifts or their talents. And I really think it's unfortunate that that's what budgetary cuts, you know, have done to the programs because, you know, I have two kids and and luckily they're, you know, they're very strong academically, but they're both artists. They both love to draw. And it's something that they don't get fostered or they don't get the opportunity to do often in their school system. And my daughter is fortunate enough to actually be at a school where they still offer art. And 
you know, she's flourishing because she's now finally taking an art class. My son, on the other hand, the only um, thing that they offer at his school is music. So you take music or you take nothing. Mm-hmm. And they kind of just put an instrument in his hand and that's what he's doing. And, and he's embracing it. But I really believe that what you said, the ability to like recognize, you know, maybe a passion or that they have a gift mm-hmm. is kind of stifled because they don't have those opportunities. And I really think it's impacting the creatively gifted who don't have outlets, you know, or who may not have outlets at home to be able to develop these kinds of talents. And I also think it impacts those high risk students that we were talking about, because while a lot of them may not be academically gifted, they may be artistically gifted or musically gifted, or like you said, they may excel in woodshop and find that they actually have a trade or a skill that can be really valuable. And so, you know, removing things like that, I think are really removing the opportunities for our kids to discover themselves and recognize that they may be highly talented in areas outside of math or science or English. Very well put. The other Mm -hmm. part of that is the socialization with fellow creative kids. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it's like the kids that are in drama. They all hang out with each other. They all talk about drama, drama, drama. And that's all they eat. They go to lunch together. Did you see this movie? Yeah, exactly. They they support each other creatively, which is kind of a good thing, especially at that uh, age Mm -hmm. and where they may not be getting the TLC from a family member, whatever. They're getting it from their peer group, if you will. So true. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very important in school. And if it wasn't for Woodshop, Mm -hmm. I probably would have never graduated from high school. Back in the day. (laughs) And I don't think that's uncommon. You know, I really think that a lot of the students who have those high risk labels on them potentially could have been or could be very successful if they were in another environment that allowed them to flourish outside of those traditional subject areas that we see in schools. Yeah, so true. So very true. I know we've been talking about your teaching career and currently you are working as an entrepreneur. Is that correct, Kelly? I am. Yes. Yes. Okay. So at what point did you go from teaching into being an entrepreneur? The short version of it is that I At one point in my teaching career, I was teaching middle school full-time and I had been brought in to teach part-time for, um, at our local university. Mm. And so I was teaching, you know, from 8.30 to 3.30 and then I was running over to campus and I was teaching evening classes at four o'clock, seven o'clock, things like that. And it was an opportunity that was given to me by the very mentor that had got me into teaching. Mm -hmm. It was a great way. My husband and I at the time, it was just the two of us. um, It was a great way for us to put money away and save and, you know, and things like that. But as soon as we started having kids, I had this schedule that was basically, you know, one and a half jobs. And I really had to look at cutting back so that I could be there, not for, for my daughter who was born. And then 27 months, my son, our son was born. Mm-hmm. So when we had, you know, you know, the life of a working mom with two kids is, is completely different, obviously, than just being of course, in yes. a couple. And so I decided to make a shift. One of the biggest things that I think happened was 
at that time after my son was born, I had been promoted to oversee all of the health curriculum for Long Beach Unified School District. And what that did was that took me out of that classroom and it gave me the opportunity to support all of the health that was being taught in the district. So I was able to work with high school teachers, elementary school teachers, you know, other middle school teachers uh, to really make sure that the health content that they were being given was effective and was being taught in the best way possible. But that position also held a different level of politics with it. And so I I really, I think the combination of not being in the classroom and now I recognize the classroom was really where I belonged and moving into a position that, you know, went with a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of politics. Mm -hmm. I decided to look for other ways to bring in that income that would allow me to also be free of that clocking in, you know, that nine to five job so that I could be there with our kids so that my kids wouldn't have to be in after school care and all of that stuff. And so that's when I made that switch into looking at what, you know, what could I do as an entrepreneur so that I could have a more flexible schedule and really just find that passion that I had in education again. Very good. It's quite the path, but a motivational path. Right? But I, I could see the transition, yeah. though, because, you know, you want to be with your kids and you don't want to be, mm-hmm. you know, running around and frazzled. So that that seemed like a really great transition for you to stay within what you're doing, but still expand and be with your kids, too. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, because we recognize that we as humans have the capacity to be learning throughout our whole lives. I know I do. Mm-hmm. What have you personally learned in your career as a teacher? I'm curious about that. Seeing so, you know, how you're an exceptionally good teacher, what did you learn, you know what, Kelly? I think one of the, the biggest things that I've learned through teaching is part of what we were talking about earlier. It's, it's recognizing, you know, obviously my students taught me this, but I certainly see it now in just other humans that I connect with, especially my clients. It's recognizing that everybody has a strength and everybody has a brilliance, if you will. Everybody, you know, everybody has something that they're good at. And I think we, as you know, humans that are making connections whether it's, you know, by doing podcasts like you guys are doing Mm -hmm. or, you know, with what I do, we all have the ability to help people recognize that they have a gift and to allow them to share that gift and to bring that gift out. And so I think all those years being in the classroom and being able to do that for students has really allowed me to kind of take that role with my family members, with, you know, friends, with other, you know, professional relationships that I have. And, and I really, I I feel really grateful actually, because I feel like I can see people in a different light Mm -hmm. and, you know, where some people might see someone, I don't know, who's always tardy or who's not successful in their career. I think I have a gift of being able to see what their potential is and hopefully being able to have the opportunity to help them see their potential. And I think that's all from those years in the classroom, working with those high risk students. That's uh, yeah, I guess, yeah. you are in a great position to yeah, be doing that. Definitely. Well, mm-hmm. I guess, you know, not all education is held in a classroom setting. You know, it, it involves so much more. And, yes. you know, 
I think you really hit the nail on the head when you're when you're customizing each person's experience in school and really trying to bring out the best in them and having them learn personally that they are valuable in their own way and you don't have to be compared to someone else. So that's really cool that mm-hmm. you're doing that because I think sometimes in school that happens. It definitely happens. And, you know, like it, and I actually, you know, I have great parents, but it even happened within my own family. So I think it doesn't just happen in schools. You know, I'm the oldest of two of three children. I was academics are my thing, which is probably why I love teaching. I, I did very well in school and my, my siblings were always being compared to that. You know, they were always like, Oh, you know, well, Kelly was in AP classes and well, Kelly always got straight A's and well, you know, you couldn't you guys be more like that. And I think, you know, I, I think there's that piece that maybe happens, you know, outside of the classroom as well as just always being compared and, Mm -hmm. you know, you should be more like A, B and C. And that's just not the case. You know, everybody, my sister, for example, has amazing talents that I don't have. And Mm -hmm. um, she didn't do well in school, but she certainly is a lot better at some other things than than I am. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just needing to recognize those differences. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I know that you currently are a course strategist that helps people that want to share their knowledge. And I wanted to get into that before we run out of time here. Mm-hmm. So tell us about that portion. So what I've, what I've been able to do, and it, I think it goes along perfectly with this conversation and it's, it's been able, I've been able to bring my belief that everybody has some brilliance within them. Everybody has something that they're great at that they could teach someone else to do and being able to combine, you know, my background in education. I didn't pursue my master's in public health, but I did pursue my master's in curriculum and instruction. Mm -hmm. I've been able to see that there's so much expertise in the world. And, you know, when I, when I came into the entrepreneur space, I started wanting to learn, learning about digital marketing, learning about, um, financing, learning about, you know, how to get yourself out there. And, and there's so many experts that want to teach others. And the biggest piece is when I started taking online classes or started going to workshops, the teacher part of me came in and was like, oh, this could be so much better if they just taught it this way, or if they just added a graphic, or if they just had a video clip. And so, I I decided to blend that and help people share their knowledge through online courses and and what Mm -hmm. I call course strategy and and put that touch of an educator along with that to not only, you know, be able to pull their expertise out, but help them deliver it in a way that other people can successfully learn from. Well, I know that when we talked during our pre-interview that we have um, before the podcast to find out about, um, you know, what, what you do, what you, you know, what your life is about. And we had discussed imposter syndrome. And I know a lot of people have that problem and they feel like they're, they're just, they're totally an imposter. They're, you know, will they ever feel like they're, what do you call that? Uh, validated, I guess, in their validated field. Validated is a good word. Sure. And um, how often does that happen to people? Is it super common? And is there something that we can do to keep that down to a minimum? In fact, why don't you tell us exactly what imposter yeah, is? Define that, I guess, define better. That, yeah. This is such a great question because I think this is something that happens to everybody 
often from you know your K through 12 students all the way to being an, an adult. And imposter syndrome basically is when you doubt your own abilities. And like you said, you feel like a fraud. You know, I, I'm sure a lot of people listening can probably think of more than one time where they've doubted themselves and they had that feeling of like, who am I? You know, I don't belong here. And so it happens all the time. I think it happens in a lot of different situations. It's interesting because I just had a colleague send me a WhatsApp message and said, I'm imposter syndrome is showing up and I was playing big and now I've halted because I'm, I'm like, who am I to try to play big? And so, you know, it's really common. I think it happens in social situations. I think it happens with students in schools. It certainly happens to entrepreneurs and and people who are in the professional Mm -hmm. world, you know, even people who are in in the corporate space, probably like, you know, thinking I'm going to go for that raise or I'm going to go for that position and then thinking, who am I? I'm never going to get picked or I don't deserve it. Or there's probably someone more qualified than I am. Um, It definitely rears its ugly head uh, often. And I think one of the biggest ways to keep that down is to really focus on your strengths and to really go back to that place of, you know, what can I add and not what mm-hmm. don't I have, mm-hmm. okay. you know, yeah. really moving from the lack to, you know, what do I have to share? And and I see that a lot with people who come and they say, I feel like I want to create an online course, but who am I to teach about this? Or who's going to take, who's going to want to learn from me? Everybody right. And it's, something. it's Absolutely. Absolutely. And everybody teaches things a little bit differently or says things a little bit differently. And so I think we really have to focus on our assets. Um, And and, and Kelly, I don't think people listen to that still small voice deep within them. The the mm-hmm. surface voice gives you all kinds of excuses. It gives you a hard time. But that that deeper inner voice really gives you good guidance if you tune into mm-hmm. it, which is not an easy yeah. thing to do, by the way. But if you do that, you may discover that you have traits and talents that you need to let the world know about and teach other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. Absolutely. When we initially had a chat, you we know you're a strong proponent of staying healthy yeah. and keeping mm-hmm. people healthy. And you actually were teaching it apparently in school or at least crafting uh, yes. curriculum. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. How, how is that? Tell us about your role in you staying healthy and teaching others to stay healthy and the importance of that. That's such a great um, question because I know that regardless of your career or, you know, your, your family life, everybody is really subjected to burnout. Entrepreneurs get burnt out all the time. Teachers certainly get burnt out. We know people who are working the nine to five, you know, experience burnout. And it's something that happens to everybody. And, you know, I'm really actually such a huge advocate of not just health in general, but I really think a lot of it stems from mental health. And I think that, you know, when, when I'm 
trying to advocate for health and and even with my students, um, one of the biggest things we need to recognize is how much mental health can actually also take a toll on your physical health. And so, you know, when you're doing things, if you're feeling tired or foggy or, you know, um, stressed out, or if you have muscle aches or whatever it is, so much, so much of that has this mind body connection. Mm -hmm. But I think when we're looking at maintaining good health, I think part of a lot of people think I need to eat better and I need to head to the gym, right? I think those are some common things that people think about. However, if you, for example, if imposter syndrome shows up and it says, well, you better work longer and put longer hours in because otherwise, who are you to X, Y, and Z, then the good eating and the going to the gym is the first thing that goes out the window. And so I think with health, we really need to start with that mental health piece of, you know, having strategies to, for example, um, work through stress or um, having some routines that maybe are not focused on eating and going to the gym, but maybe they're focused on meditation or breathing techniques or journaling. And I think there's a lot of things around mental health where if we could really focus on how we're supporting people with stress and anger and dealing with their emotions and giving them the tools and the strategies the physical piece would be so much easier to fall into place. Oh, I would think so. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. But really I'm, I'm curious, Kelly, you have a, a lot of energy, obviously, and you're obviously very motivated. What do you do for yourself? How do you stay motivated? How do you maintain that energy level and keep your focus? You know, I appreciate you saying this, and I don't think we've had this conversation. We had this conversation before, but I'm actually right in the middle of chemotherapy for breast cancer. Oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry to hear that, but I'm glad you're getting treatment because you will get better. Yes. Good for you. I will. And um, yeah, my fifth treatment is tomorrow and I have six. So I'm actually almost done. I started back in January and I think so. I thank you for recognizing that I have some energy because believe me, some days I definitely feel the opposite. But one of the biggest things I've had to do is I've had to focus on my mental health. And before I was diagnosed with breast cancer, as I mentioned, I was running, I was doing a lot of working out Mm -hmm. and I kind of had to reevaluate and recognize that going through chemotherapy, you know, my normal exercise routine probably wasn't going to continue. And and mentally, I actually had to prepare myself to let it go, recognizing that the energy that I had probably need to be conserved for just working or, you know, mean being a good mom. And so one of the things I do every morning is I actually, the first hour of my day is spent in quiet time. So, and my husband's always like, this is so contradictory, but I wake up between five and five thirty every morning, which is about a good hour, hour and a half before the rest of my family wakes up. Mm-hmm. And I journal and I listen to a meditation. Or sometimes I just make a cup of tea and I go sit outside or I sit by the window. And it's really holding that sacred space for setting my mindset up for the day that I think allows me to continue to have that energy. You'd think I'd be a lot more stressed or a lot more anxious than I actually am, but I'm really able to work through it in the morning. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've gifted myself, I think with this hour a day to just 
work on my mental health and ask myself, you know, how do you feel this morning? What is it that you need? And if I feel anxious, I might journal or I might turn on some music. But I, I think focusing on the mental piece has allowed me to reap the benefits physically as well. You know, I, I, I applaud you on what you're doing because you're doing such a good job and um, taking time out for yourself to really kind of, I like the meditation and all that, because I'll tell you what, I went through cancer and it is a rough mm-hmm. ride. It is mm-hmm. a very rough ride with chemotherapy and just the stress of it on your body and the way you've prioritized what you're doing. And it's okay if you are not in the physical fitness shape that you're used to because at first I know that's kind of a weird feeling to not be Uh exercising and you're trying to prioritize your energy levels and and um, trying to stay you know positive it's very it's like a lot of juggling that you're doing right now and it sounds Uh like you're doing such a good job the meditation, I will say, I highly recommend that. And I'm glad you're doing it. Yeah, it helps so certainly work for you. So healing for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So good for you. Well, you know, I think we're reaching the end of our program now. So we're going to ask you the question we ask all of our guests. And that is, if you could sit on a park bench and chat with anyone from the past, who would it be? You know, I think I would sit with my grandmother. My grandmother on my mother's side passed when I was 14 and she was born in Japan. She was brought over here when she met my grandfather who was stationed there and she came over here and uh, they lived in Arizona all of their lives. And when she came here, she was embarrassed to be Japanese. She actually hid a lot of that culture and really tried to Americanize herself. And when she passed, a lot of that Japanese culture and heritage and probably amazing stories that she had um, went with her. And so it wasn't something that I recognized, obviously, you know, being, I think I was a freshman in high school when she passed, I didn't recognize Mm -hmm. the, the brilliance and the insight that she probably had that she probably had. I didn't recognize the importance of asking her about it and, you know, asking her to share some of the things she learned, some of the greatest life lessons that she has. And so it's been something I've thought a lot about lately in terms of, you know, what could she have taught me if I had just recognized that there was an opportunity and I would love to sit with her and ask all of those questions now. It's a great answer. And you'd be surprised how many people refer to their grandparents. Mm-hmm. We probably get that mm-hmm. more often mm-hmm. than anything else. But yeah, because I think when you're young, you don't think of, to ask these questions. So when you get older, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, I should have asked this. Well, plus they have a history, they lived a history yeah. that you can only read about. So true. Yeah. So true. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Kelly, we have to wrap this up, but I have to say you have been a wonderful guest. Yes. And, you're, and a, your candid discussion with us has been fascinating. Really enjoyed mm-hmm. everything you ever say. And you are uh, a strong advocate for education. And as we learn from you and as we all think, Uh, Learning should be a lifelong process. We should never stop learning. And we really appreciate all your insights and your thoughts on that. 
Yes. And thank you so much for being on the show today with us, Kelly. And we're so glad you shared your story as a teacher, entrepreneur, and as a cancer survivor. Thank you so much for being here. But now I need to let everyone know if you'd like to know more about Kelly Tenney, we will have more links for her under the show guest tab on thoughtrobepodcast.com. So everyone can learn more about her and please connect with her on social media and check out our website. Course coach, don't forget. That's right. Don't course forget. strategist. We need course course help. She's the one to check. Absolutely. With. Thank you. Kelly. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure, and you know, I, I enjoy all of our conversations. I, I just love the types of guests and things that you have on. So I feel really honored to have been able to um, be a guest on your show. The pleasure was ours. Yes, definitely and for sure. All right. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. Bye bye. Also, if you're enjoying our podcast, both Ron and I would really appreciate you buying us a cup of coffee. Just go to thoughtrow.com, scroll down a bit, and you can find that link right on our website on the homepage. It's really easy to do, by the way. Yes, it is. And all the money we receive goes to our production costs. Yep. And primarily because we want to keep our show commercial free. And we want to continue to bring you the best quality content with great guests. That's right. Thank you for listening to Thought Row Podcast. I'm really glad you tuned in today. We hope you enjoyed the thoughts and ideas we shared with you. We post a new podcast every week, so remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. So it's bye for now from my husband Rod and I, wishing everyone a great day. 